This episode is sponsored by the human rights team at Lee Day. Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister at Doughty Street Chambers in London and I specialise in human rights and this podcast is all about human rights. This week I'm delighted to be joined by Adam Gopnik who is an American writer and essayist and he's best known for being a staff writer at The New Yorker where he's been since 1986. I've been a long time reader of Adam's and he's got a new book called A Thousand Small Sanities and, and it's subtitled The Moral Adventure of Liberalism and I thought it'd be great to get him onto the podcast and explain what he means by that and what relevance it has to human rights, which is essentially a liberal institution. The Better Human podcast is kindly supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course tours in London. And for 2020, they are launching a criminal justice and human rights pathway. If you want to support the podcast, you can at patreon.com forward slash better human. And please do leave a review if you enjoyed this episode or previous episodes. And you can follow us on Twitter at Be Human Podcast. So, Adam, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Well, um, thank you for having me, Adam. It's uh, looking into a, a mirror, right? Adam on Adam. It, right? it's, it's, it's a pleasure. Yeah, no, I mean, it's really great to have you on. And I really enjoyed the book um, before knowing that you were coming to the UK. I, I had already um, made my way through it. And, and I mean, it sits on my shelf next to a few other... I, I know the, the event I came to the other night, Elif Shafik referred to your sort of melancholy liberalism. But I yes. found it quite, quite encouraging, actually. It sits on my bookshelf next to sort of Stephen Pinker and a few other sort of liberal writers from different political persuasions and I the, the books that I go to when I'm looking for solace that, that actually this stuff is actually makes a lot of sense and well, is, do, is doing really well that, that's nice to hear it's funny you mentioned Steve Pinker because many people have you know Steve Pinker and I are uh, exact contemporaries in Paisan we're both uh, uh, Jews from Montreal we went to the same university to McGill more or less at the same time Steve preceded me a bit I and mean, he was there with my sister we had the same mentor a guy named um, Albert Bregman uh, and we've done debates often about these things. I will say that I think you put your finger exactly on what separates us. Um, Steve is a kind of uh, technological optimist. He believes that since the scientific revolution, the Enlightenment, the world is getting uh, not inexorably, but uh, gradually better. I'm a, a, an aesthetic pessimist. I believe that human life is inexorably uh, sad and our hopes will inevitably be disappointed, but that with with that understanding we can struggle for palliatives. We can struggle to make uh, to make uh, human lives more tolerable in ways that allow us to contemplate the uh, the existential truth uh, more ably. I, I want to start with your definition of liberalism, which is I, I think. Possibly, I mean, possibly the longest definition of liberalism <laughs> that I, I've ever read anyway. And do, do you mind if I read it no, to you? No, please, please. It's going to take a couple of minutes. Um, but it's from page 80 in the book. Um, what, what is liberalism then? A hatred of cruelty, an instinct about human conduct rooted in the rueful admission of our own fallibility and the inadequacy of our divided minds to be right frequently enough to act autocratically. A belief that the sympathy that binds human society together can disconnect us from our clannish and suspicious past. A program for permanent reform based on reason and appeal to argument, aware of human fallibility and open to the lessons of experience. An understanding that small open social, social institutions, if no longer larger than a cafe or more, more overtly political than a park, play an outsized role in creating free minds and securing public safety. 
a faith in rational debate rather than inherited ritual in, and in reform rather than in e either revolution or reaction, a belief in radical change through practical measures, a readiness to act non-violently but visibly and sometimes in the face of threatened violence on behalf of equality, a belief that life should be fair or fairer or as fair as seems fair. People's lives should not be overdetermined by who their parents are or how much money they might have inherited or what shade of skin their genes have woven. A belief that the individual pursuit of eccentric happiness can be married to a common faith in fair procedure. What, what would you prioritize? Well, one of, the, one of the themes of the book, as you know, Adam, is that um, liberalism is as much a temperament and a tradition, as, far more than it is an ideology with axioms. So in trying to create a what you know, philosophers sometimes call a thick description of liberalism, it gets thick. You, you stir it around. For me, the foundational ideas are, first of all, failabism, that we just don't know enough to act as though we know enough. You know, we're living right now, at this very moment when you and I are speaking, in the midst of the, uh, the, uh, the virus that may or may not wipe humanity out, we're at exactly at that kind of moment. No one really knows what the right or best thing is to do. And we're going to figure it out as best we can by having small-scale experiments, one large-scale experiment, and seeing what works, what kind of quarantine is essential. Is quarantine essential at all? Uh, we believe that all the public health measures of the past 200 years ranging from uh, sewers to knowing to wash our hands, which people didn't 100 years ago, will, should make a significant difference. But it's only through accepting the fact that we don't know and we'll have to be, as a society, argus-eyed, incredibly sharp-eyed, about figuring things out, little bits of piecemeal social engineering uh, that will make it work. That's what I mean by... Failabism can sound like it's a, it's a huge uh, philosophical aesthetic statement, when in fact it just reflects that uh, daily empiricism of our experience. So that's one thing, failabism. The second, I think, is um, faith in reform. And I, I emphasize that because it's exactly where uh, conservatism, as I understand it, and liberalism part company with all of their overlap and common roots in uh, in 17th century and in Enlightenment ideas. People often ask me, well, aren't you really describing conservatism? Because this is, there's a kind of Okshadian faith in improvisation, which you could graft onto my version of liberalism. There's the Burkean uh, mistrust of ideology and, and uh, uh, overly uh, baked ideas. Uh, but I think that where exactly liberals break from, even Okshadian or Burkean conservatives, is that liberals believe in the possibility of reform and in the necessity of reform. They believe that reform can happen through broadly parliamentary measures, and they believe that at any moment in uh, human society and in, and in its evolution, there will be injustices and cruelties going on that will have to be remedied. Conservatives on the whole don't believe that. They believe that we should come to uh, those remedies reluctantly and only as necessary, that we shouldn't spend our social lives searching for injustices. They find that the comic that we're on Dickens Street. It's, you know, Mrs. Jellybee in Bleak House, you remember, is a comic character, not because Dickens doesn't care about injustice, but because he finds someone who spends their life searching out uh, global injustice while ignoring the uh, domestic squalor near at hand is foolish, is, is comic. So, and yet that Mrs. Jellybee in Bleak House is part of liberalism. It's a constant search to remedy uh, injustice to alleviate cruelty. So that appetite for reform is the second uh, is I think the the second pillar of liberalism. And finally, if I can add one more, 
Adam, it's the belief, exactly as I say, that there is no contradiction between pursuing uh, as as much as we can be free and autonomous individuals, our own peculiar version of happiness, with a feeling for uh, the common good. Uh, those are often presented by conservatives, certainly, as though they're contradictory, and I believe that historically and intellectually they're complementary. So those three, fallibism, reformism, uh, and the, uh, uh, the complementary nature of individual liberty and social equality, that's the core of liberalism. And just... Picking up on fallibism, um, you start the book and you really, um, a theme throughout the book is is John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor. And, and Mill's argument on free speech is that the, 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 un, the real reason for free speech is our, fallib- our fallibism, is we were almost always wrong. And is one sort of essential point. And then the other essential point is we don't know when we're wrong. We only know later that we were wrong. So if we reduce speech unnecessarily, then we will lose the opportunity to find out what, what we're wrong about. And, and, and that seems to be, speech plays that a, a really important role, it seems to me, in the way that you see liberalism, that sort of public space, the cafes, you know, the, the, the social um, sympathy that is generated by this kind of dis- that, this discourse. That, that's exactly right, Adam. But let, let me say two things about that. First of all, I wanted very much, wanted what a, an essayist, which is what I am, can do, that a philosopher, which I am not, uh, can't do is uh, act arbitrarily to illuminate individual lives. Um, if you stop in the middle of a book of uh, an academic book about liberalism to spend too much time with John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor by the rhinoceros cage where they did their clandestine courting, the um, the uh, the reviewers get impatient. But that's what an essay is. It's uh, it's ideas illuminated by individual experience. And I was hugely moved by the way in which the love story of John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor reflected their struggle for values. They were passionately in love with each other. She was married, and they had to create a living compromise between, not between good and bad, but between um, actually conflicting ideals, between the need for uh, loyalty and integrity in a marriage or in a uh, a society, and the desire for self-fulfillment. They tied that knot very closely, and they lived it very well, I think. Uh, so I wanted to bring them in as human beings, not just as um, uh, automatons who made up ideas. Um, but yes, I think that it's the idea of free speech is terribly important, and exactly as you just described it, Adam, it's not just free speech in the political realm that we should be free to criticize Donald Trump or Boris Johnson, important though that is. It's also uh, freedom of talk, we might say, freedom of conversation. And, you know, um, lest that seem too sentimental or too... Um, uh, far afield or too rooted in the past, that whole idea that uh, the Enlightenment was made in the coffee houses of Paris or the idea that the most important um, uh, support foundation of liberal democracies are not their official institutions, but the unofficial ones of parks and glee clubs and so on. Lest that seem uh, you know, too far afield, you, you need only look at contemporary Iran, at Tehran, even as we're speaking, where every day women are opening coffee houses as places that they could go and speak, not to plan to subvert the government, not to plot against power, but simply to take off their religious garb and have normal human conversation with each other. And every day as those coffee houses open, the religious police come to shut them down. I think there were 535 shut down by the religious police in Tehran alone last year. Why is that? It's because the autocrats, the theocrats in this case, understand 
that the propagation of free conversation is a lethal threat to their authority. If people start speaking freely about any subject, uh, then they will have an appetite for free speech about many others. Uh, and so in that way, I think that there's no more powerful uh, foundation of uh, liberal societies than the institutions of commonplace conversation. And it's interesting you raise Iran because going back to what, we, what you mentioned at the beginning, as, as we sit here with this frightening coronavirus out, outbreak, the you can almost it's almost like putting a sort of radioactive dye through the, through all these systems of different countries, and you see the different ways that different countries deal with um, this. And you see in Iran where there's been this big outbreak, and it seems like there's been a big outbreak because of the nature something to do with the nature of the political system, that they, they kept it quiet for a long time. They were sort of irresponsible in dealing with it. I mean, but for the grace of God, go all of us. Who knows how Boris Johnson's government will deal with it. But it does seem to say something that they, they're very good at shutting down free speech, but, but, but not very good at, at, at this sort yes, of virus. Yes, exactly. Virus. Authoritarian societies have, have enormous difficulty in dealing with uh, a, a labile threat exactly because they don't have an axiom and an ideology to deal with it. And they're frightened of reporting it upwards because there's no flexibility in the society. Now, we should add immediately that China, on the other hand, an authoritarian country, seems, underline seems, to have dealt with it well by using extreme authoritarian measures, shutting down whole cities for yeah. weeks at a time. It's a very well-organized authoritarian society. Exactly, as against a very poorly organized authoritarian society. And that presents us with other uh, challenges and thoughts. Do we want to follow that same authoritarianism in our own society when it comes to the coronavirus? Or are, does that involve, in fact, a, a very poor um, estimation of risks and benefits? And, you know, if, if indeed, uh, you know, there's 1% mortality associated with it, let us hope that that's the case. Uh, do we want uh, to uh, shut down freedom of movement, circulation, and conversation simply in order to uh, eliminate that risk. Those are those are the questions which liberal democracy thrives on. Yeah, and 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 that something that I often think about as a human rights lawyer is the human rights laws we have. Human rights laws don't create human rights cultures. That 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 they they come afterwards rather than before. But one of the things that they are there for is these kind of moments in time when they're not really there for when things are going well, when things are difficult, when the, when the instinctive reaction, if you talk about a liberal temperament, we'll come to talk about that. The instinctive reaction is to elevate the autocrats and the autocratic ways of thinking because, you know, whether it's terrorism or some other threat, that's when people are much more tolerant towards the idea of shutting down civil liberties. And that's when th these are very dangerous times for democracies um, particularly. Absolutely. That's, you know, it's moments of panic and fear. We look for the big daddy who will reassure us and make us feel safe. And just as you say, we lived through it in the early years of the aughts, if we can call them that, uh, post 9-11. Boy, did we feel it in New York where I lived. Uh, enormous fear, enormous desire for authoritarian and at times of uh, uh, hideously cruel solutions like uh, torture, basically, basically. The, the United States embraced torture as a policy because of the extent of the panic and fear. Over time, I think Americans learned that you could either live your fears or you could live your life, and that it was much better and saner to live your life and put your fears in the back drawer. And as that happened, Americans began to look at what had been done in their name in terms of the violations of human rights 
and began to feel ashamed and began to feel how wrong that had been. But at the time, exactly as you say, the panic and fear about the possibility of terrorism uh, drowned out. And as you say, exactly, that's why we need laws. You know, it's, that's thematic in the book as well, Adam, is that um, human beings are not horribly bad at the practice of coexistence. On the whole, they do it. But the moment there's a crisis, if you don't have a system of institutions and of laws, if you don't have a principle of pluralism to go along with the practice of coexistence, things degenerate very quickly. Yeah, and 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 the and in the aughts, as as you say, I mean that I, I think back to the, the twenty four and Jack Bauer. I think that that's what f- symbolizes for me the hero being the. The, the the guy who goes in and breaks the rules, you know, forget the niceties of 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 law of, of the rule of law and those sorts of things. We want somebody who's going to take the guy who's got the ticking who got the code to the ticking ticking bomb and 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 beat him up until he until he gives us the answer. And as we learned, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I, I always used to think that uh, George W. Bush modeled his public behavior. Uh, not so much on the hero of 24, but on uh, Bruce Willis and Die Hard, which tells a very similar sort of story. Because remember, Bruce Willis is a good family man with a smirk, and he's surrounded by idiot reporters and dim-witted liberals who don't understand that there's a terrorist attack on the tower. And, and stupid police yes, as well. and stupid police yeah. as well. So there is that kind of heroism of the plain-speaking anti-terrorist. As you know, when we look back on it retrospectively, none of that stuff worked. None of that stuff worked at all. Routine police work figuring out, uh, you know, breaking the networks and breaking the chains worked on the whole, imperfectly, but well. And that kind, and um, so far as I know, and I may be wrong about this, but I think there's general agreement that violations of human rights, torture in plain English, uh, fail to produce any truly useful information or prevent any uh, imminent attack. That, that's true. And, and, and it also created the the issue that Obama faced with Guantanamo Bay is you can't shut it down right. because you can't put these guys on trial yes. because all the evidence um, that you obtained is contaminated, which creates this sort of endless um, detention, which is, I mean, we, we had similar sort of yes. issues, but not the same. No. Um, but, but, but it backfires. And yes. for liberal states, it always backfires. And it's, but it's very hard to remember that. And it's very inconvenient to be the person reminding of that during the time when everybody just wants to be safe and, and secure. But it is historically the case, and I think it can't be said often enough, that we can be, look, I you know, I have two small children. I was down in the lower Manhattan when 9-11 happened. I have no desire to be soft on the very evil guys who did those things. And I was, bizarrely, I was one of the few people who was also here in um, 2004 for the London bombings. I bring bad luck with me wherever I go, apparently. But the reality is, and this goes not just through the... Uh, uh, through recent history, but deep into previous history. You know, I often think about, you know, the uh, Jamaica mutiny in the middle of the 19th century, right, which was put down as brutally as possible. And the John Stuart Mill, my hero, formed a committee uh, to condemn the, uh, the, the uh, British army, the British garrison, for having uh, tortured the mutineers. And everyone said, oh, you have to do it, or the, or the natives will revolt. And of course, in retrospect, we see good and, good and bad in that circumstance uh, very clearly. The Better Human Podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on 
interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. I want to talk about the liberal temperament. Um, this, this, this idea that you, this idea that I think is another strong theme. Um, you say, this is on page 21, liberalism is, is as distinct a tradition as exists in political history, but it suffers from being a practice before it's an ideology, a temperament and a tone and a way of managing the world more than a fixed set of beliefs. What do you mean by that? Well, if you ask, you know, um, what do liberals believe? And you look at the great uh, liberal figures, both in politics and philosophy, and there's a huge spectrum of uh, actions, a great range of um, behaviors, if you like. Uh, liberalism is clearly compatible with socialism, for instance. Uh, you know, one of my heroes is, uh, not in the book, I think, is Roy Jenkins, who was the great home secretary in the Wilson government in the 1960s. I was lucky enough to know him towards the end of his life. I reviewed one of his books in a friendly way, and that made us, that's taking the the, uh, the thorn out of the lion's paw when you do it. And we had, it was one of the great pleasures of the nine, 1990s for me, is we would have lunch together often. And uh, Jenkins was a perfect embodiment of the liberal temperament in that way, not just in his erudition and his literary um, uh, skill, but also in the way he saw problems. He saw uh, economics problem, economic problems pragmatically. He was a social democrat, certainly believed, had no particular affection for uh, what was then called, what is now called neoliberalism and then called Thatcherism for the idea that free market solutions would somehow dissolve social problems. He knew that was nonsense. But he felt passionately, so he felt pragmatically about economic questions, but he felt passionately about uh, human rights issues. He was the man who uh, helped, was a home secretary when homosexuality was no longer criminal and removed um, the rope, removed capital punishment uh, from, uh, from Britain. So in that, uh, uh, and yet, and Jenkins is one kind of liberal, a liberal hero, but you could look at someone like, um, uh, Barack Obama is another kind of liberal. Now, Obama brought in a privatized form of national health insurance, was not in any way a social democrat, or very, very marginally a social democrat, because he came of age and placed in a different way. His central issues involved trying finally to resolve the great, um, uh, unhealed wound in American life, which was the, the racial wound. So you have people, so in other words, liberal politicians like liberal thinkers are addressing the particulars of their of their lives and therefore don't have an ideological solution in the way, say, that what are called neoliberals, uh, Thatcherite or Reaganite conservatives do. They say, um, uh, in France, you know, free the market, uh, emancipate free markets, and your problems will be solved. That's an ideological position. It has... There are elements that are positive that have worked about it. Uh, the just the opposite. The leftist position is um, uh, take over uh, free markets, uh, nationalize industries, prevent billionaires from emerging. Our friend Bernie Sanders makes this argument. And, right Jer now. and Jeremy Corbyn has, and just, has just made that argument. Yes, exactly. Uh, in, in, in here, and that's those are ideological arguments. Now, I don't mean to to belittle or dismiss them. Those have had incredibly rich histories, and as you know, in the book. I go to great lengths to give the most sympathetic account I can of those kinds of ideologies because they fill gaps in liberal thinking and they address problems liberalism leaves unresolved. But those are ideological positions. And if you know, you say that uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn is a left-wing socialist, you know more or less what he stands for. If you say that Roy Jenkins was a social democrat but essentially liberal of temperament, 
you know what kind of thing, how he was likely to behave, but you wouldn't know exactly where he would stand on any issue at any one time. That's what I mean by temperament rather than ideology. And, and so the, the temperament, going back to fallibility, I guess that the, the way you would define ideology is, is ideas that may be shared by, by liberal people, but ideas that are not uh, held with any view to changing them at any time soon or, or with a real sense of how are these working in the world and how do I need to uh, change or um, edit my approach to fit with the evidence that's coming in as I apply them? Yes, Social Democrats in 1945 believed in a massive program of nationalization. Uh, they learned from experience that there was much to be said for uh, certain kinds of nationalization and much to be said against other kinds of nationalization. So in 1955, they had a very different take on it and a still different one in 1995 or in 1997. That's what, uh, that's the uh, pragmatics of liberalism, it seems to me. But you know something, Adam, it's so funny because this is not something I say in the book, but it's something I've been brooding about a lot as I've been going around talking about the book with with people like you. And that is that one of the kind of liberal insights that is, is I, I almost think is perversely pugnacious to alliterate a bit to, to offer is that we all are still inclined to believe as sort of the great, great, great grandchildren of Marx and the leftist tradition, I mean, grosso modo, that economic issues are primary and essential and fundamental, and everything else is sort of secondary to them. So where you stand on the great economic questions and questions of class struggle will determine your, your foundational orientation. It occurred to me just, you know, it's occurred to me over this year that, um, that this is one of Mill's insights, is that in fact, economic questions are prone to pragmatic solutions. There's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I don't think any rational person would dispute that there's some mix of free market and um, welfare state policies that have to work together to make prosperous societies. But human rights are not pragmatic in that sense. They are something close to absolute. So Mill, for instance, sat as a socialist for a while, but always had a vigilantly flexible idea about uh, economics. On the other hand, when it came to a question like women's rights, women's rights to participate fully uh, in the social in every social sphere, economic and political, on stage as well as on the page and so on. And he was an absolutist about it, along with Harriet Taylor. And I wonder if we're not sometimes blind to the truth, that that's where the greatest human revolutions of the past 200 years have been. Uh, the econo you know, it, our attempts to rationalize our economic life have been uh, unsuccessful on the whole. Uh, whereas attempts to tinker with them have been more successful. But the revolution in human rights, that is, simply look at the feminist revolution, have been overwhelming. Right now we're living through a revolution in uh, the rights of sexual minorities, which have, have also created um, realms of uh, possibility for human beings that, without exaggeration, have never existed before in, hu in history. I mean, there have been homosexuals and trans people as long as we know, but the idea that we should reserve a legal space in which those people should be protected to act as they choose and to fulfill their natures, that's never been within a legal framework. It's never happened before in human history. So my inclination is to think that the, the realm of the personal, if you like, has turned out to be the most uh, fundamental, the most uh, broadly liberating of all political realms. Yeah, well, Eleanor Roosevelt said, you know, where do human rights begin in the small places close to home? And if they're not there, 
they're not anywhere. And I think that that's something which which I certainly um, go by. But I, I mean, there's a lot there's a lot to talk about in that in that <laughs> statement. I think first of all, with our human rights absolutist, and and this is definitely a, a, a criticism which is um, which is put which is provided of the human rights movement that, that it's kind of it's almost religious mm -hmm. in its you know the, here are the articles of faith which is the universal declaration you know you are born in equality you are you know sh you have equal rights to social security or health or, or whatever and they, they brook no argument and i think that is it's a really important if you talk, talk about the liberal critique it's important to understand that if you're going to be and really engage with the fallibility of humans, which is, in a sense, what human rights are about as well. You've got to accept that certain things are going to be wrong, but then they do progress. So the rights of trans people or homosexuals were not included in the Universal Declaration, but they've, include, they've, they've slowly made their way into as, as social attitudes change. But, I mean, I, I, I agree with you entirely, and I often start lectures to students about human rights by saying the, these are the most radical ideas of of the certainly of the last hundred years in the sense that no society has ever been like the society which the universal declaration of human rights says that we should have as our society there, there are there have been no equal societies and there's certainly been no societies which aren't hierarchical and arranged according to gender or sex or race or um or, or, or religion Reliberal, yes, in, yes. in history in any right. society so the idea that this is just going to flow into our societies like a kind of you know in, in a smooth way is crazy absolutely right um, and they're going to be backlashes and it's going to be extremely difficult to get there but it does seem to at least that if reading the universal declaration it does at least describe where a blueprint for where we want to get to and and also a a, a certain kind of a description of where we have been going in, in liberal societies in and democratic democratic societies um but going back to that sort of temperament idea, the issue with human rights generally is that you try and you can bring in these, you can have a constitution like the Weimar constitution or the uh, Saudi Arabian constitution, the Soviet sounds, constitution or the Soviet too. constitution that sounds great, but without a culture of human rights. And I think it's the same exact thing as the liberal culture that you're talking about, this culture of sympathy and free speech and dis discussion and, um, and acceptance you're, you're never going to get there. It'll only be tinkering around the edges. But isn't the the problem with that that not all people are temperamentally liberal? So, I, I, you know, by psychologically, they're just not all people are temperamentally li temperamentally liberal. So, how do you how do you deal with that? How do you um, allow for that? Well, you know, that all of that is I think is is true. Uh, it's absolutely true that the spark of social sympathy that liberals celebrate is met by the, what should we call it, by you know, the, the damp water of xenophobia and fear at every moment and of bigotry. Um, so I don't want to seem fatuously optimistic about that. One of the truths about liberalism is that liberalism is always embattled wherever it's found. It's always under threat and it's always fighting for its life. And if we begin there, we become less traumatized by um, uh, the, the reality that it is under threat right now. Uh, I think that uh, two, th I always end up saying when I'm responding, I always say two things, which I guess is the liberal preamble. Lawyers always say three things. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're trained to say three things. <laughs> that, that, I, I don't know why three <laughs> things is the thing. You know, there's a joke in France where I lived for many years that at, that at the, um, the Rue Saint-Guillaume, which is where Sciences Po, the great political science school is, they learned to say 
always begin by saying there are two things. And at, on the Rue d'Homme at uh, the Hautitude, uh, they learn to say three things. That's the difference between uh, uh, doing administrative work and doing... Well, uh, the problem with three things is you get, to, you get to the end of two and you forget, forget what, you forget you what the third the, thing is. You always yeah, yeah. the third. Uh, what I, you know, the, the question of, of how it is that we manage to... Uh, two things. First, I think that one of the reproaches, and not foolishly, against the kind of liberalism I'm, I'm describing is that it's, you know, it's pragmatic about what you're worried about, but it's absolutist about what it's worried about. So that it, it has a pragmatic view of, uh, you know, feeding starving people, but it has an absolute view of trans, trans rights for something like, you know, of, of that kind. Um, so I think, and I write in the book about, and it's, I think, one of the more uh, uh, tormented pieces of writing in the book, if I can say so myself, exactly because it's a subject about which I think you have to have um, many uh, uh, shifting eddy and, and curlicue as you navigate it, is that uh, uh, how absolute are human rights? You know, we were talking about the terrorism question before. And there you know, you know the Bruce Willis phenomenon, right? You know, Bruce Willis is trying to save uh, everybody's life from the Alan Rickman band, uh, led band of terrorists, and he's going crazy because the press is only interested in reporting on the terrorists and the police are inept, as we said. And there's a part of you that sympathizes with Bruce Willis at that moment, and you say, you solve the problem and you don't read them their rights, the, the terrorists are about to blow up the building and so on. So I think that an absolutist view of human rights is probably always going to be necessary to uh, amend, uh, to take a more practical version of it. Uh, we all worry about hate speech laws. We believe in freedom of speech. We believe that is an absolute, close to absolute human right to speak our minds freely, to express what we want. And yet in almost every liberal society, every liberal democracy, certainly in Canada, my home country and here in the UK and France, there are hate speech laws that are in operation. You cannot deny the Holocaust in Canada, not, not alone in France. In, in France, you can sort of understand it because it's so historically close, but in Canada, you can't do it. Um, and it's historically quite remote. Uh, and the reason for it, and I quote uh, a, a hero, a heroine of mine, Rosemary Abella, who's the, uh, one of the justices of the Supreme Court of Canada, who was a DP, displaced person, a refugee. And uh, makes the case that though that speech is not immediately harmful, it empowers those who would do harm. There's a difference between uh, saying, I believe in autocratic uh, one-party rule, which is ugly but not, should not be forbidden, and saying, I believe they were right to kill the Jews. Uh, those are two different kinds of statements, and we're capable of distinguishing, discriminating between them. Uh, and I think that that's the... the 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 way in which uh, liberalism tries to deal with that problem. You know, uh, one of the, the presiding deities of this book and of my thinking about this is, of course, the great uh, Austrian-British philosopher Karl Popper, uh, the author of The Open Society and Its Enemies, which I still think is the best purely political account of liberal values. And, of course, Popper introduced the paradox of tolerance. We Can we tolerate even the intolerant? And how can... It's, it's a suicide pact if liberals agree to tolerate those who would end liberal societies. Uh, and I think that, that in that sense, liberalism can't simply be neutralism. It can't simply be without uh, armor and weapons against its enemies. Well, talking about speech, I, I, I think from, from across the, the pond, 
um, it it seems to me that the American approach to the United States approach to free speech is is to see it as an absolute right, but to treat it as a qualified right. So there was, all, you know, there always been the kinds, the same kinds of exceptions, really, incitement to violence, um, shouting fire in a, in a full theatre, those sorts of issues have always been made inroads into free speech. It's not, it's not absolute. Whereas in more common law jurisdictions like, the, uh, well, I guess more Commonwealth jurisdictions, so the UK, Canada, we've got these hate speech laws, which just seem that bit more intrusive. And we don't actually have a Holocaust denial law in the UK. They, they do. I mean, there is one in Austria and France and various other places, but there isn't one in the UK. Although we've got this law which which prohibits gross, causing gross offence on social media, huh. which, which is actually much wider. I mean, it's it's a huge... It was, All it, that social media does is cause gross offence. Well, exactly. Well, it was, it's actually... It's actually it was designed, it's called, the, it's under the Communications Act. Mm-hmm. It was designed before social media. Oh, uh-huh. And it was to prevent people you know, calling other people over a public telecommun- telecommunications line or a mobile phone and being offensive towards them. So sort of, you know, completely different. And now it's being used for the whole gamut of human behavior on social media, which is a completely different environment. But it does raise that issue. You do speak about it in the book a, a, a bit about social media. and Well, well I guess about the... Um, cafe culture and the importance of that. But social media just seems to be, um, it's taken away all the intimacy of, of cafe culture, but it's kept in the the arguments. Um, and, 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 and then through these algorithms has foregrounded the most offensive and provocative speech. And that seems to be a challenge to this general idea of discourse and even argument is a good thing for society. And, and brings out that tension of, of tolerance versus free speech. Absolutely. You know, in my spare time, in my, in my, it's either I should say in my spare time or in my real life, this being citizenship vocation rather than artistic vocation, I'm a, I write musical theater. That's my, one of my passions and I've done a couple of them. And I'm in the middle right now of writing, uh, just beginning actually, a musical about the history of the coffee house because it's sort of an irresistible subject that, that, uh, you know, blossomed from this this book, and uh, where I would have been thinking, where the where we've been thinking of ending it is exactly in a, a Starbucks, right? Where we we're still drinking coffee, but instead of actually having conversation with another human being, everybody is lost on their device, uh, communicating with the ether in the in a mean spirited way, uh, and that the exactly as you say the. Uh, both the reductio ad absurdum and the and the the final ironic repudiation of the culture of the coffee house is uh, the social media, where you get all the bad of it and none of the the good of it. The good of it being that we have to learn to look someone else in the eye and deal with them as another human being, rather than dismissing them as a as a fiction on uh, on the internet. So yeah, I think that's a real it's a problem problem we're we're coping with now. It's clearly an enormous problem in the United States. Um, I will add only, if I may, that one of the truths is that we are hypersensitive to the social media we're aware of, and when we're not aware of it, it's totally invisible to us. What is it, what I mean by that? I'm on Twitter. I have a Twitter account. Um, you and I met on Twitter, right? And I'm constantly aware of the craziness of the some of the Sand, Bernie Sanders followers, of the extremities of the Corbynistas, and always aware of the madness of King Donald as he tweets out his things. But I'm not on Facebook at all. 
and on Facebook and all. And so all the drama of Facebook is just is invisible to me. Now, I may not be paying proper attention, that means, but it also means that we are not imprisoned by social media in exactly the way that we existentially feel that we are when we're engaged with it. A very good rule for social media is to turn it off. And if that sounds like too simple a solution, I always reference back, and I hate to preamble sentences with, I am old enough to, but I am old enough to remember the heyday of television, of broadcast television in the States, when people said very similar things about the damage the television was doing, both to our cognitive attention and to our political discourse. It was fragmenting our minds so we could no longer... Uh, think uh, in rationally, and it was uh, making our political discourse so narrowly visual and emotive that we could no longer uh, respond fully to events. When we look back on it now, that period, that high period of broadcast television here in Britain or in my native land of Canada, looks like a, a looks like a glorious agora of reason. If you think about the BBC in the 1960s to 70s or the CBC in that same period, so. I'm always inclined to think that we risk overestimating the damage that any medium of communication will do to our, our rationality, uh, but I'm, I am trying to write that final dystopian coffeehouse scene all the same. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I can't remember if it was you that wrote it, but I definitely read a good article in The New Yorker about this a couple of years ago about the, the reaction to, to various different medias. I think it was with reference to the effect it was having on political engagement in the or political elections in the United States and how radio, print, TV, how they all changed the way that that was engaged. But they also all um, had this backlash of criticism. And I remember growing up with, you know, video games with the great, you know, the great evil going to yes. turn children into, into monsters. And now we have, you know, we have, um, uh, what do you call them, you know, retro Atari things yep. and we look back and, and it's, all the quaintest, it's all very sweet it's all like victorian exactly uh, it's all very circus sweet. games yes and and uh, but but I, I do want to pick up on that on that point and and going back to fallibilism i would push back that social media does have a lot of benefits to it and those kind of interesting very liberal minded discussions can take place on social media whether through whether it was through blogs now through twitter or through some other media um, and you can, in a sense, not only choose to turn off, but you can choose to have the better forms of discussions and kind of navigate in a way and behave in a way and and perform in a way, because I think social media is quite performative, perform in a way which is clearly a liberal approach. Now, that doesn't mean you get to avoid all the, all the backlash. And I've certainly personally had, had, had lots of that. But I think there is there is something to be said for this. What we what will we think in thirty years' time when we're all, I guess, plugged in, plugged in, um, you know, through our veins to some sort of virtual reality system which we can never leave? Um, what will we look back on Twitter as and, and social media as as being? What, what was the true effect of social media? And I think that there is something different and new about it because we're all talking to each other in a mass way. Globally. Gl globally, which is completely different to any kind of media before. It really is a fundamental change in the way we communicate and, and the way that the, hu the worldwide human consciousness... The way humanity imagines itself. Uh, uh, you know, emerges and, and, can, and can interact. And, and wouldn't applying, applying the, the logic of your book, really, is wouldn't, in general, and leaving aside the fact that... or, or 
pricing in the fact that human beings are also quite aggressive and um, Ornery, and, yes. and, and, and will respond to criticism and having their fundamental ideas challenged in quite a potentially aggressive way. But assuming that's the case, isn't this an opportunity for a huge amount more liberal interchange of ideas yeah, yes, and sympathy I, I and all that kind of stuff? Absolutely, I think it is, despite the, the melancholy final scene of my uh, to-be-written musical. Absolutely, I think it is. And the proof of that, Adam is that in uh, authoritarian countries, the two we've already mentioned, Iran and China, they, the government is doing everything they can to uh, seal off the internet, to have their own, so to speak, private Chinese or Iranian internet. When, a, when the Iranian government felt threatened, they shut down the internet for nine days. Uh, the Chinese are, are planning to have one that's you know, controlled by the government, exactly, and to shut off the possibility of going elsewhere. Now, apparently... I'm too much of a, not a technophobe, but a techno-fool to understand why, but apparently that's extremely difficult to do. And since so much of modernity is de determined by the Internet of Things and so on, there, there are technological optimists, I think like my friend Steve Pinker, who think that that's, uh, that's truly building the Great Wall of China, you know, that you can't keep uh, invaders out that way. The imaginary line. The imaginal, yeah, yeah, it's a b better analogy. It's the yeah. imaginal line. Of that too, but the proof, the fact that the autocratic governments themselves recognize that the social media, that the internet, that the simultaneity and the uh, globalization of human conversation is a threat to them is is proof that that it is is proof that it is a as much as for all the bad things about it, it is a very powerful weapon of liberal conversation in this in the sense that I describe in my book. The, in the second half of the book, you try and give a sort of sympathetic hearing to the right and the left's critiques of liberalism, which I think is a really both excellent sections. And they're both, they're both proper, um, properly engaged with those, with those arguments and not sort of putting up straw men. Um, I, I just want to come at it from the left critique of, of liberalism because I, and, and I think that the, the, well, the, the, there's two bits that stood out for me. Well, first of all, was the, was the description of the, the parents telling the, the, um, revolutionary child not to be revolutionary because it's kind of dangerous and um, the liberal parent um, saying that and, and I thought that was an excellent metaphor I mean it's not even a metaphor it's it's it's, it's, the, it's, right, it's, right. it's the reality right um, but it does it, it does have that kind of the left is generally I mean we've got it here at the moment the left is quite a young the, the yeah. Corbyn left is quite a young movement right. and there was a lot of those discussions happening of you know don't don't you read history? First of all, don't haven't you seen what happened with the, the no. communist countries? And and also, don't you know what happens more generally when you just overturn things? It's like it doesn't turn out well. It never turns out well. But then the response is, well, things. It, how can you simultaneously say there are these great injustices and carp on about inequality, and at the same time say, well, we've got to take the next fifty years to to deal with it when we can? We've got solutions right now, and that. Psychologically, it's quite it's quite a difficult situation yes, to be I, in. I use the for analogy, and I was fully aware as I was writing it that I would position myself um, not altogether attractively as a fuddy-duddy bourgeois dad. But I use the analogy that of, and, and I used it in part because um, this book was written rhetorically as a letter to my daughter Olivia. That you, the liberal, often feels like the father saying to his daughter, "Don't drive without your seatbelt on and and uh, drunk 
with that cool boy with the Hunter Thompson book. I know he's cool, and I know that you'll be inclined to take your seatbelt off, but it's an insanely dangerous thing to do, driving drunk with your seatbelt off, um, however exciting it may feel when you start it. That doesn't mean, to f- complete the analogy, don't go driving, and it doesn't mean don't um, fall in love and and uh, uh, with the cool boy. It just means show some awareness of what the co- possible consequences of it are. I, you know, you mentioned the the problem with Corbynism mean, uh, being uh, uh, the bad things that happen when you overturn everything, and that's true. But it's also uh, the case the the catastrophically reactionary re- results you get when you run a campaign that's pitched too far left. Uh, that's something again you experience through history. You understand that if you create a, a political party that is out of touch with the aspirations of the majority of the country, what you will get is not what you want. What you will get is exactly the opposite of what you want. And so Corbynism helped produce the hard Brexit and helped produce Boris Johnson. And that's what's wrong about it. That's the car crash that you're trying to avoid. Uh, and I th- recognize, and I think it's one of the things I was trying to capture in that chapter and even in that particular little example, that liberalism in that sense is always at a rhetorical deficit to um, leftism because leftists are the inheritors of the vocabulary of romantic rebellion. And who would not sooner have inherited the vocabulary of romantic rebellion than inherited the, the, the uh, vocabulary of um, uh, tepid domesticity? I recognize that, and I think any honest uh, liberal recognizes that. And it's one of the reasons why we also... I hope, try and learn from and even emulate the great romantic heroes of rebellion. I include in that chapter, as you know, a long tribute and, and biographical description of Emma Goldman, who's one of my, one of my great heroes, as resolutely anti-liberal as any uh, thinker could be, but also hugely courageous, expelled from the United States in, uh, right after the First World War uh, for, uh, by J. Edgar Hoover, actually. Uh, as a radical, goes to uh, the then brand new Soviet Union, realizes that it's a horrible dictatorship. This is under early Lenin, not after later Stalin, uh, and really refuses ever to compromise her conscience about human rights, exactly, that the end of the revolution should be uh, an expansion of human rights rather than a contraction of them in the interests of some radical party in power. Uh, Now, Emma Goldman was never a liberal, and we can always learn from the audacity of her imagination. And I would never want liberalism to be uncontaminated by the, that kind of audacious imagination. And it's one of the risks, it's what I was trying to capture in that chapter, one of the risks of liberalism is that it can become fatuous and complacent. It can, we can be unaware of the, uh, the horrors that we ourselves are perpetuating. I, I give the example of the Congo genocide, which is one of the great stains on the 19th century liberal record. We can be unaware of those things, and we can be too uh, unambitious, exactly as you said, in our in our uh, in our visions. So, uh, both on left and right, I try to recognize as passionately, not just as deeply, but as passionately as I can, exactly the ways in which liberalism, the defects, deficits that liberalism has. Because if you don't recognize your own defects, you're not a liberal. Then you forget. That lesson. What's funny about it, Adam, is is that the left wing attacks on this book have basically been to recapitulate the left wing, the arguments I make from the left in the chapter on why the left hates liberalism, 
and then say, it must have been Gopnik's children who told him these things, and yet he refuses to understand them, genuinely not recognizing that you could hold these arguments in mind as significant and authentic without succumbing to them. The the point the the the, the part of the book about colonialism, I think I think is interesting because the, the we're going through a bit of a debate. Well, we're going through a constant debate here about about the the legacy real, of the legacy of colonialism. How do we deal with it? And there was actually a really good new podcast by Afua Hirsch, who's a writer uh, on this on this subject, and talking to people who were who had direct experience of colonialism or were you know part of the British authorities or were the, part of the persecuted populations. Is colonialism, I want to put, put this in, 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 in the appropriate way, because I don't think liberalism can wash, I don't think liberal people can wash their hands of colonialism because it was done it, full, it was done as a liberal, it, it was justified through with liberal language, put, put it like that. But colonialism also seems to be, to have been a, a very radical, non, very radical and illiberal um, project in the sense that you know let's we we're going to go out and subjugate um and educate inferior populations around the world and, and usually on a racial with with the inferiority being on a racial basis and that seems to be and, and you make the, the the point which is regularly made on the left here about hitler basing his uh, some uh, uh, his racial um conquest ideas on the on, on colonial um on on a hist on a sort of his understanding of what colonialism was, and I think it was it was a pretty fair understanding based on what was going on. So, so how do you sort of disentangle that? Is it possible to disentangle? Is is it a in the same way that that if you impose communist rule on a country, you might have particular almost inevitable consequences or or, 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 or unintended effects? Could it be said that this is some sort of inherent part of liberalism that you end up subjugating an illiberal or unliberal what you see as unliberal populations or is it is it just something which was uh, was aberrant and not really anything to do with the liberal temperament it, it, was it an episode or an epidemic within the liberal temperament so, or, or just not or just completely unconnected it was it was where liberalism happened to, it happened to correlate with with liberal reform domestically but internationally as a project it wasn't the slightest bit liberal well Incredibly rich question. I I like to think that I addressed it directly. I didn't avoid it or try and evade it in the in this book because I think it is a central question. A couple of things. I grew up under the most benign version of the post-colonialism in Canada, which was had you know long been independent, was a uh, country composed largely of other Europeans or descendants of Europe, apart from of course from the uh, First Nations, the Aboriginal peoples. Um, and therefore, it was a more or less benign version of it. And it was still oppressive in lots of ways. The feeling uh, when you were growing up in Canada that real life was happening in London, uh, the fact that the, the, the queen was on your currency and the, uh, uh, the books all came from another place and literature happened elsewhere rather than in your backyard, the same things that West Indians uh, describe. Uh, the cultural, that colonial cringe, or Australians for that matter, was an oppressive, was in itself oppressive, even though, as I say, it was the most benign form of colonialism there was. So I'm, I'm sensitive to that in all of its forms. Second, it is also the case, and I think an undeniable case, that in Canada was lucky enough to inherit 
the structures of British parliamentary democracy, which have been hugely successful as a transplant in Canadian life. It's one of the things that hasn't needed significant reform, even as Canada has altered itself and become unrecognizable as a British dominion as it once was, as a huge multicultural polyglot country. And yet the forms of British parliamentary democracy, not just in the federal government, but in each of the, each of the provinces, have proven to be extraordinarily robust and sturdy. And the same thing can be said more audaciously, or at least until very recently, in India, which was not the most benign form of British colonialism, but where certainly the legacy of British parliamentary institutions has been, I think no one would argue, uh, would deny, on the whole, a positive legacy uh, to in, an independent India. But did, did it need to be a colony of, 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 no, of, of Britain I'm, to take on the, no, the parliament? Of no, of course not. And there are plenty of other countries that took on those institutions without having had the colonial experience. I just mean that, though hardly an imperialist, I don't think that I agree with my friend Neil Ferguson that the legacy is not simply uh, uh, a dark one, but is one that is much more uh, chiaroscuro-like in, in, in that way. And finally, and perhaps the most important point I'd make uh, about all that, is exactly what liberalism has is a corrective conscience. I give the example of the, uh, the, the, the Congo genocide, and the Belgian genocide in the Congo around 1900, uh, which is, uh, though not, uh, Belgium was not, was a monarchy, not a, a liberal democracy, nonetheless was very much part of the concert of Europe, part of that, of that world. And uh, the, the truth is, is that it was exposed for the first time, and then the first efforts at a remedy were made, by, as you know, by Morell, British journalist, really, uh, for originally a clerk and then a journalist who realized what was going on through his first-hand experience, began reporting on it, writing about it, formed, a com formed committees. And that corrective conscience is implanted in liberal societies in a way that it is uh, not in authoritarian societies. So uh, liberal societies have the obligation to constantly be uh, uh, examining and remedying their past. Every society has a, has a duty to do that. Authoritarian societies of either left or right do it not at all or very poorly. Uh, you know, the difference, for instance, between the... Uh, uh, Canada right now, my, my home country, is going through a terribly difficult period in which the uh, nature and degree of uh, Canadian injustices against the Aboriginal peoples, First Nations peoples, as we call them, has become more and more evident after having been put aside for a very, for a very long time. But one need only compare that with the Chinese experience of Tibet to see the difference between a liberal democracy with liberal values struggling to come to terms with its own history of injustice with an authoritarian country simply suppressing any possibility any evidence or any historical memory of uh, a hideous wrong committed against uh, uh, an exotic or a neighboring population, the people of Tibet. Uh, we could multiply those instances all the time. All societies, to come back to our foundational theme, all societies are failable. Every society is capable of committing enormous cruelties and injustices. We are human beings and such things will happen. The only reasonable question to ask is how committed are you to a corrective conscience, to making a moral accountancy of your own uh, uh, cruelties and injustices as much as other people's, and how institutionalized, how much part of the principles of the society can that become? On the whole, again, and seeing it in the vast historical spectrum, I think that the liberal democracies of the West 
have been exceptional in their commitment to that kind of moral accounting and to in the existence of that kind of corrective conscience. Uh, certainly nothing like the same degree of uh, uh, self-consciousness, moral consciousness, has ever been uh, evidenced by the authoritarian alternatives to liberal democracies. And by exceptional, do you mean you mean better rather yes. than really, really good? I mean better than, <laughs> not, and, and necessarily imperfect. Yeah. And, and, I, and I suppose coming back to uh, human rights and, and I guess... And just let me add one yeah. other thing too, just at a very practical level, because that was sort of more oratorical. Um, liberal societies, liberal democracies have flourished more than ever before once they got rid of their colonies. The, the imperialism was not essential to liberalism, as Marxists said at that time. Uh, Britain divested itself of its colonies, became a more prosperous place than it was when it had them. You know, the old argument is, is that, in fact, the, uh, the empire cost uh, Britain more than it, than, it, than it provided. So if you ask the question, can liberalism manage without imperialism? Self-evidently, it can't. I know how the argument then goes. Well, then you have cultural imperialism or you have the imperialism of, of multinational firms and so on. But then, then that begins to become an argument uh, a self-reinforcing argument. We're talking about we're talking about uh, colonialism or imperialism. We're talking about rule from a foreign place. We're not talking about uh, the uh, problems of globalization, which are real but different. Yeah, it, it, and it is. Right. I, I think when people look back in look back in the future at this period, they're not going to think of it as the same right. thing. They're not going to th see imperialism and cultural imperialism as the same thing. They'll right. see them as two different things. Exactly. So. And and, th and that's the that's the important distinction. But just coming back to human rights and, and to finish off, I suppose one way of looking at human rights and these these very simple set of um, set of rules or values or principles or whatever however you want to think of them is a kind of litmus test to apply to any kind of the actions of a liberal society um, to allow for that self criticism and 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 acknowledgement of fallibility to take place, and that's really what all I guess the unifying feature of the reactionary and the um, the progressive social movements have is that they they apply this framework of human rights to what's going on in society now, and they say this is these are our conclusions that this part of society is failing um, from a human rights perspective, whether it's the acceptance of LGBT rights or the emancipation of women or race or, or whatever it is, or, or our treatment of, of, of foreign populations through sweatshops or, you know, and, and foreign internet, multinational companies, environmental um, deg degradation, all of the above. That's the framework through which we can critique our societies. It's not the framework which is, um, which our societies are really based on in, in any real way. They kind of is and kind of isn't, but it's useful in that sense. That's how I like to think of them. They're a kind of, they're a, they're a, they're a, a lens through which to identify Failure. fail, failures of liberal values mm -hmm. in, yes. in a society. Yeah, I think that that's true. And I think that's one of the things, you know, it's not, what you're saying is not very different from what I was saying a moment ago about the importance of having a corrective conscience and having the values of that corrective conscience implanted in the society so that we have human rights commissions, that we have that kind of scrutiny. Now, I, I'm sympathetic enough to the conservative critique in this case, because we've been talking really about the left, leftist critique of liberalism when we talk about uh, imperialism and colonialism, to know that there is, you know, there is something to be said against the nanny state. There's something to be said against the relentless scrutiny of every 
um, act, every pronoun, every detail for its moral perfection at, at every moment. That's when people make fun of people like us who are concerned with that kind of liberal reformism. They, there's, they're, they're not wrong. There's something, there can be something comic about it. Any good idea carried to excess can become absurd. Uh, but on the whole, I think that that's exactly right, that those are, uh, it's like a, we're the SWAT team that's able to come in at moments of emergency, an American, uh, an Americanism meaning, you know, the, you know, special weapons and tactics. We want to, we want to be able to arrive with a set of values that may not be uh, uh, intuitive to the society, but that are, uh, are that are essential. And are usually really uncomfortable. Yes. And, and I think that goes back to the question I asked you earlier, which is, I think it's kind of, and I'm thinking of the Jonathan Haidt and the, the righteous mind kind of stuff about, about literally about temp temperaments and about how some people are more likely to be liberal and I, and I guess politically liberal in the sense of worrying more about the people who are far away from them um, than the people close to them. And that, that's to kind of caricature it. And, and conservative is the opposite. And conservative people tend to be more into their religious groups or local communities look up to that, authority more yeah and look up to authority more for, and, and 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 those are the kind of temperaments but but the reality is we're all a mixture of those things um to, to differing degrees or we're all, we're all on a spectrum but the, the the question remains how do you inculcate this liberal temperament in society like where where, where is the intervention to make more people sympathetic to more people which is what I think you need ultimately for the liberal project and, and is not necessarily true in many, many societies. Two things, I'd say. One is, and I'm aware that this can sound fatuous, but it's fatuous only because it's, you know, many cliches are cliches only because they've been said so many times because they're always true. And this may sound fatuous, but I think is fatuous only because it's profoundly true. Look how far we've come. Look how far we've come. There are realms of human rights now that uh, are universally accepted, even by people of very conservative temperaments, that were unthinkable within my own lifetime. Uh, I've told this story before, but my daughter, Olivia, to whom this book was originally addressed and is still addressed, uh, and I watched the uh, Kennedy-Nixon debates from 1960 on YouTube not long ago, and she was struck by the reality that it would have been impossible for them to be asked about homosexual marriage on that. It wasn't just that they would have been against it. It was an unsayable, unthinkable uh, force. Now it's so commonplace that even the, uh, though, though there are still forces against it in the American right, in the, on the British right, all but the very extremes have accepted it as a fact. Imagine in 1966 how that would win. Well, it was brought in by the right yes. as well. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the extraordinary yes, thing. exactly. It was a right-wing government. Exactly, a conservative government. A, a, that, a conservative government that... Um, not necessarily created the, the movement, but brought it into law. But, yes, exactly. And of course, that's part of a long and very positive history of liberalism, just the way Disraeli in the 19th century was the one who brought in, um, in the working class enfranchisement, recognizing that it might be in his interest, but also because it was an inevitability, and you'd rather seize an inevitability and ride it than reject it. So every day we're largely unconscious of, of the degree to which our society has become successfully permeated with liberal values that would have been unimaginable in the past. The, women's rights is perhaps the most extraordinary of them when we think about the reality that for thousands of years of human history, half the human population was deprived of 
uh, fundamental political rights. And though they're insufficiently achieved now, they nonetheless are more achieved than they ever have been before. Uh, so that's one that's one uh, uh, one response I would I would make to that uh, to the question of how you make it happen. The second response is uh, that again, exactly uh, constitutions, um, official parliamentary functions, laws, and legislatures are inadequate to create liberal societies. Liberal societies are built on the foundation of what um, is, I like to call commonplace civilization, but what academics call uh, civil society or uh, social trust, uh, that you need to have thriving institutions, often apolitical, that accustom people to working with other people who are not of their clan, not of their kind, but uh, and able to work together. In the absence of those, of that kind of um, civic society, a civil society, or social trust, um, you cannot make a liberal society. The good news about that is, as uh, Amartya Sen, the Nobel Prize winning economist, has pointed out, is that those kinds of, that kind of social capital is not peculiar to uh, Euro, European uh, or European-derived societies. They're planetary. Uh, in uh, every society has some form of social capital. Uh, Confucian societies do, Buddhist societies do. They all have ways in which people learn to work together to build uh, circumstances of social trust. Uh, the bad news is, is that making those basic human instincts of uh, social coexistence into a principle of political pluralism is extremely difficult, and those institutions turn out to be very fragile. But on the, both of those grounds, on the grounds that we've come astonishingly, miraculously farther than we ever thought we could, and that even as liberal institutions come under fire, our need, our, our need as social animals to have some kind of institution of social trust uh, is very strong. Quick story. I was reading about the um, political crisis, the permanent political crisis in Russia, and one of the dissidents was saying, all we want is for Russia to become a normal country. And you had to laugh at that because Russia, in that sense, has never been a normal country, except for maybe five years around 1905 and another five around... Uh, in 1991, Russia's never had a living human rights culture in its history. But the dissident recognized that that should be the normal state of things, that having human rights is, shouldn't be the abnormality because it feels to us as human beings as normal, that we are able to speak our minds freely, that we don't live in fear of the secret police or of the government coming to uh, uh, poison us or kill us. Uh, and I think that that doubleness how can you call it a, you, a normal when it's never been normal in that way, but our human recognition that it ought to be normal to have a, a full range of human rights? I think that that captures something very real. Is your daughter convinced? Uh, my daughter, fascinatingly, though, all the, as I said, the leftist critics of the books are convinced that I have a Marxist daughter who's been struggling to teach me and I have failed to learn from her. My daughter, in fact, has gone to the right uh, in, the, in the time we've been together. As she's uh, to be honest with you, she's at an American university where the uh, pieties of progressivism, sometimes called politically correct, a term I hate, but is sometimes a useful shorthand, are so overwhelming. You know, the cult of pronouns, which I'm sure you're aware of, right? What are your pronouns? Uh, and so on, which seems like the most frivolous side of uh, uh, liberal self-glorification of a kind of leftist self-glorification, that she's taken a trip towards the libertarian right. My son, on the other hand, who was very much part of the 
the construction of this book, and who made me crucially aware of what is for me one of the one of my favorite parts of the book, just his writing, which is the the necessity of having a tragic vision of life, even as you have an ameliorative vision of of political progress. Uh, my son is on the uh, the kind of the Heideggerian right, and so Heideggerian left, if there is such a thing. In other words, acutely aware that the problems of the mystery of existence will never be solved, but that in the meanwhile we have to do the best we can as reformers. Yeah, it's a great place to end. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Adam. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much to Adam Gopnik for joining me on this episode to remind you his book is called A Thousand Small Sanities. The Better Human podcast is kindly supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB Law undergraduate course taught in London. And for 2020, they're launching a criminal justice and human rights pathway. If you want to support the podcast, then please go to patreon.com forward slash better human. Please do also consider leaving a review, which is extremely helpful in getting this podcast out to more people. Thanks so much to the podcast editor, Samantha Bruff, and the podcast research producer, Natasha Holcroft-Deems. See you next time. Bye-bye. This episode is sponsored by the Human Rights Team at Lee Day.